this morning morning time for the meditation uh, instructions and some thread and theme of uh, teachings weaving uh, in as well and I'll start with if I may that aspect of it uh, first one of the very important areas uh, for us as uh, human beings on this earth to be very clear about the difference between body image and body we are very very vulnerable to the identification uh, the belief and the support through feelings, emotions and perceptions to our body image. This image which uh, arises inside of us is a confirmation of alienation, detachment, remoteness from the actual body itself in which the, the body, the physical elements take second place and the image which we have about uh, the body takes priority. We easily forget that this body image which we have, which uh, arises, is, soci- is socially constructed. It's not self-created. The uh, image comes from us, from around, the enormously powerful, persuasive elements which are used particularly in the society in which we live and especially in consumerism to help generate and cultivate uh, and maximize uh, the body image. And all the strategies which are used through the senses, through what we see, such as dress, and uh, what we uh, respond to, um, the use of uh, uh, per, um, perfumes, the uh, clothing they, uh, mentioned uh, there, and all the comparisons which are encouraged, which generate envy, jealousy uh, of the other, and images and pictures about what a perfect body is. If you go into any magazine shop anywhere, uh, there, there are literally hundreds. I was in one of the, the railway stations. There were, on a rough count, in just one month, there might have been somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 different magazines, many of them for women and men displaying an image of the body. An image of the body of such touched-up beauty one simply cannot find on the streets. And this mythology is propagated to us. It's a controlling, terrible uh, campaign. And the outcome of, uh, outcome of that, it affects one's sense of worth and integrity and appreciations for oneself because one is looking at oneself through the prism, the mirror, we might say, of the body image. And it's very, very easy, and young children are terribly affected by this, the manipulation of uh, children through the social uh, media, through the use of the mobile phone and the texts and all the picture images that go along, 
propagation of that, generating this state of human beings having less access to the actual body and more access to the image of it. And so we find ourselves as children or as adults in the very unenviable situation of liking ourselves physically, not liking ourselves physically, feeling okay with some parts, not feeling okay uh, with uh, other parts of the body. All these pictures, images, views and opinions keep impressing upon us. Not only is this image problematic uh, in, in that way, but it makes us very, very dependent on the approval and the recognition of others as well. So when we're carrying uh, an image around of who we are or what we are or whether we are likeable or whatever, those uh, uh, images influence our relationship to others. We really have to look at this whole concept, this whole construct of image. It is an image. It's not a truth. It's not a reality. It's an appearance. It's a kind of false presentation. And to cut through that, when it's with regard to the body image, it will require from us to be much, much closer to the body. We can have an image of ourself there, in a whole variety of ways at the physical level. And sometimes we have a picture or image of ourselves as being whatever it might be. Healthy, of course, is another one. Looking young, being attractive, and all the other things. These pictures and images which um, carry forward uh, there will mean that one will keep facing the opposite. If one identifies with the image, looking uh, younger, or being handsome, or being uh, beautiful, or even being fit, being healthy, if we identify with this image and picture story, it reduces the capacity to deal with the opposite. If we identify with being healthy, we can't handle being sick. If we identify with looking young, we can't handle looking uh, uh, older and much, much more. So I say the image aspect of all of this really affects us uh, very, very strongly. It needs to be in a uh, high level of collective, communal um, discussion and um, exploration there. We, keep, we read, probably here in Germany as, as well as in, uh, uh, elsewhere, an increasing number of young people, including children, including uh, uh, teenagers, engaging in self-harm because of the image they have about themselves at the physical level. That is tragic. That is tragic. So... We, in our practice here, we have a task to do, we have an engagement here to look and uh, explore. Our relationship is the image of blocking the way. And with this identification with image, all sorts of ways, just I just mentioned two or three of them with you, 
it reduces this one of the important aspects. If the image is very strong there, it reduces the capacity to deal with things when they're difficult. Or if the image is a self, negative self-image rather than a positive one, and positive is also not healthy, if the negative self-image uh, is uh, predominant and it's at the physical level, and then something is going on with the, with the body, Sick, sickness, matter, or, uh, or, or weight, or size, or age, or whatever it might be, it will land in the negative self-image, and the, and the outcome of that, it will increase itself. It has to, because there's a negative self-image, then something in the actual body is going on, which is difficult, hard to handle, and that, and that goes straight into the negative self-image, and that intensifies it and doubles it. It's quite something for a human being in this rather brutal and primitive society with little insight to, to actually address all of this and to, and to see how we have a- ended up in this alarming situation. And some, for some people, the only way of escaping from the self-image temporarily is to take medication because they're so depressed. What sort of culture are we living in? And they just came out in... I could go on for this for for quite a while, but I'm going to come to the end. Just one... Sometimes the figures. It's less... It's in this millennium, so just over 20 years or so ago, the area of people feeling... Depressed, not necessarily clinically, but depressed, um, and requiring some medication for it. The average age of that starting was in Britain, probably typical elsewhere in the EU, was around 30 years of age, when people might start going to a doctor, or professionals, or whatever, to receive some kind of medication or whatever. It's a space of just over 20 years that the number, oh, I don't know what the percentage is, but that number is now, I mean, in terms of the age, not 30 years, it's 14. 14 years of age. That's a growing number, per- percentage, every year, or average, is telling their parents, I feel depressed. I'm unhappy, I'm despairing, sometimes I'm having thoughts of self-harm. In this, just in the space of a generation. It's a tragic situation, and some parents of you will uh, uh, know this sometimes with uh, our children or with uh, other, people's, uh, other people's children. We're, we're making people unfit for life on earth. That's what we're living under. It must be one of the most cruel belief systems that our species have ever had to live under is the one that we are living under now. So then we come to the body, to the practice, having got that off my chest, to the body and to the practice. <coughs> that in the relationship to the body, various numbers of aspects are uh, uh, 
uh, to this. One is, or being well, a reasonably calm perception of the body. Immense, it's an immense thing these days to have a calm perception of the body. With a calm perception of the body, language, and this is an important point in this, can arise and will probably often arise, which has in it the I and the my. The Dharma teachings is not a teachings of no self, no I, no my. It's not, not in the Dharma teachings. There. But it certainly is to be mindful of the dependent arising of the conditions and I and my can arise. With the calmness and with the clarity, we can say comfortably, authentically, oh, I am sitting here, I am engaging in meditation, I am uh, watching my, my breath. So the I and my, in a single sentence, the sense of self, the I and my, arises in the perception towards the object, and the object is the body, or the object is the breath. And therefore, in a simple, conventional, everyday way, we use the language of I and my. When the I and my is under some kind of pressure, which comes specifically and mostly from the past, there, from the conditioning, from the various um, identifications we have about quote-unquote ourself, that movement from the past into the present lands in the present and it distorts <coughs> the I and my. So if something is going on with the body, pain, tension, um, stress, sickness or whatever, that pressure from the past lands in the present, it lands on the I and my, it distorts it, it corrupts it, it perverts it. There. And the outcome of that distortion, when there is some illness or sickness or pain or tensions or, st or stresses, the I and my, aff affected by that, begins to worry, get agitated, feel some anxiety there, some agitation, uh, generating more thinking about possibly fearful thoughts. So there is the body, which is the object of interest, breath and body. Then there is the perception of it, we might call it our mind here. Sometimes we just see the condition of the body, as mentioned, say, oh, uh, right now there is, I am experiencing pain in my knees. Right now I am feeling uh, low energy, whatever. The quiet description of the event shows a clear comprehension, a non-reactive viewpoint, and that is fine. But when that calm clarity and perception of the object is under the imp 
impact of the old unresolved ways of looking it would just land straight in it and that will generate a problem for the mind so as the Buddha would say it's enough issue to deal with the pain in the body then we double it by having kind of pain, anguish fear, anxiety, pressure uh, in the mind going on at the same time because of the view the worry view let's say uh, in relationship to the body certainly makes it a hard way to live and we do not have to live like that we have a practice we can recognize moments and they are precious and expand and develop and cultivate those moments where we can see body as body no matter what the condition actually uh, is and that may be a threat to our existence it may set a, a minimal a certain time there though nobody but nobody has the right to say to another human being you only have this number of days or weeks to live that it is uh, it is far too uh, big a claim to make on uh, view on people's uh, uh, lives we, we don't have that authority with people what we do have is to explore day by day taking real care uh, there and as I say sometimes the I and the my used quietly in a valid and important way but it is not it is not that we have to look at the body always through the prism even though it's calm and clear non-reactive nothing from the past reactive <coughs> reactive is a repeat of history which is unresolved and sometimes we can dispense with the image and the eye and the my nothing special about it nothing esoteric nothing mystical about it we can dispense with the eye and my and therefore direct the mindfulness the meditation meditation in a way means the quiet sustaining of the mindfulness as a common thread as mindfulness develops and deepens we call it meditation and as the mindfulness develops uh, and deepens, we can connect with the body and with no image and see the fact of it and this is our saving grace and seeing the fact of it is pretty simple the body consists of elements that's not a, a theory it's not what the Buddhists and the scientists or whoever uh, made it up it's the fact and we can describe these elements in a whole variety of ways. We can say it's a, an expression or formation of nature. It's a composite of DNA. It's an amalgam of a whole variety of interacting uh, cells. It's a formation in this extraordinary evolutionary process that's going on, which is currently manifesting as uh, you and me and much more so in other words our experience of real clear direct contact with the body there. so there's no image not an image you, there. 
One of the ways that that is confirmed is through the contact, such as with the breathing experience, therefore not a theory, not an analysis, such as experiencing the body directly, the variety of sensations and tingling and throbbing and aching, experiencing the form of the body, the temperature, the warmth of the body, the posture of the body, uh, and uh, more in terms of our real immediate relationship to the body. <coughs> and if we can apply and practice that, which is what the encouragement is, it reduces living alienated and detached from the, the body and incidentally the Buddha has never used the word detachment in 10,000 discourses that it can remove or help contribute to us letting go of the, um, of the self-image because it's cut off from the actuality reduce that see the emptiness uh, of it to use the Dharma language for a moment and really learn to really connect with the body. And if we are connected with the body as it actually is, it will affect our posture, it will affect our diet, it will affect our uh, energy, it will influence our relationship to oxygen, so vital for all of the cells of the body, and uh, much, much more. Because we're in touch with it. We can experience it. We can listen uh, to uh, the body. And where the body remembers there. It remembers sometimes trauma. Uh, a friend of uh, mine involved in a minor uh, accident uh, some, just some uh, weeks ago uh, spoke to me afterwards about the, uh, the impact it had on her uh, uh, physic physically there. And it is a trauma. The, 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 there's an uh, accident, some whiplash, there's some pain, considerable uh, pain, and it, the body is a, such a sensitive being, we're such sensitive creatures, it traumatizes the, uh, the body. And we don't want to have a traumatized mind which be, you know, understandably, but a traumatized mind then meeting with a traumatized body and in intensifying, doubling the trauma. One, it's not enough to be quietly <coughs> patient and do what is necessary to heal the, the trauma in the body there. And just on the trauma uh, for a moment or two, because the word, it's a fairly recent word, I have to say, in these circles, it's terms of the regularity of the word usage of the trauma that quite often and mostly in the reference to trauma it's usually fair enough of the past relating and impacting upon our present in some difficult or challenging uh, way so trauma from the past but we should not neglect nor forget uh, that more and more human beings are being traumatized by the condition of the living present. It's not that the person has any trauma from the past, it's a trauma from the present. Climate e emergency, all the pressures on the young and the elderly and the middle-aged, 
uh, uh, through uh, life. All the demands that are, uh, that are being made, all the pollution that's in the air, all the insecurity about today, tomorrow, uh, next week, next year, uh, next decade, our children, our grandchildren, and so forth. It's not only, therefore, trauma, which is from the past, it's occurring, but there's the immense amount of trauma going on day in and out in which men, women, and children are being traumatized by the present. And we, we do need, and we will need, for a long time ahead, men and women who are looking at this, working with this, and saying, yes, there are these traumas of the uh, present, and school teachers and parents and social workers and psychotherapists and doctors and psychologists have to start looking at these kind of traumas that people are, are, ex- are experiencing. You could call it ecological trauma, you could call it environmental trauma, global trauma, social trauma, you, but to ensure that we really listen to those who are having it very, I hear it every day, very hard time dealing with this present world and suffering over it but do not have a long history of suffering do not have a history of trauma and being brutalized and abused and manipulated from the past have a pretty well adjusted well integrated and people who are sensitive and caring and and thoughtful are realizing the impact of what this world is is doing upon themselves or their of their loved ones. And we need a whole new discourse to address this. It is hardly being addressed like many other things. There we are. In working with the body and giving exploration to the experience uh, 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 of the body, yesterday with the instructions, there the attention was uh, given to the mindfulness of uh, breathing the exploration of the uh, direct experience, so therefore the direct connection with that. One way, amongst the the many, and these are just some small reminders to you, that one way would be just letting the organic, natural process of being with the breath take place inwardly and outwardly, inhaling and exhaling. If you notice the daydreams, the wandering mind, um, what else? Uh, loss of energy, boredom, and uh, all the other all the other things that can uh, go on for the beloved meditators. Then, one has the power of the intention, and this means that it can be useful just to breathe in a little bit longer. That's the intention. Breathe out a little bit longer. There, so inhaling and exhaling and purposefully drawing in more air, bringing more oxygen down into the body and that can allow and uh, enable more contact with uh, the breath. Sometimes some people with the breath, (coughs) if you wish, sometimes to help the steadiness might use a counting method. So breathe in and uh, breathe out on the out-breath, and most times people report there is more likelihood and possibility of the mind wandering on the outgoing breath, or the moment or two before the next in-breath comes in. 
it's not that we are breathing in and out non-stop. So what that means is we might breathe in, we might breathe out. There could be some moments and um, several seconds or whatever before the body needs to draw in the next in-breath. And so far with, what is it, maybe 40, 45 years, I can't remember now, of uh, uh, teaching, we have a 100% track record that when the breath went out, some seconds may have gone by in the meditation hall and the next breath came in. So sometimes people get in anxiety, oh, I'm not going to be able to breathe. Now, so far, we have a very good track record. You breathe in, you breathe out, you wait a few seconds. When the body needs, the next in-breath will come in. And so far, it's always happened. No guarantee every day, as we get older anyway. But anyway, so far, so good. With working with the body, um, so one is do remember, just organic breathing in, no intention to alter the breath. If you find it helpful and beneficial, use the intention, such as making the breath a bit longer and deeper, so the oxygen goes into more cells, it can generate a little bit more energy, a bit more interest, and one can be more available to the mindfulness of uh, breathing. Both are equally valuable, see from your experience. Then when it comes to the body, a variety of ways of really connecting with the body, once again reducing the self-image, the body image, and just experiencing uh, the body. It may be (coughs) one way is (coughs) (coughs) to scan the body. And that means you can just put your mindfulness directed to the top of the head and quite systematically, moment to moment, just move your attention and feel the life of the body. Vibrations, sensations, pulsations, tingling, throbbing. Just really feel this body is alive. You're bringing mindfulness to it. You're really connecting uh, uh, with it and really sensing and being well appreciating and acknowledging this extraordinary expression and form of life and consciousness, mindfulness, really experiencing the body. It's really a precious thing that mindfulness and the body have a meeting together. The power of mindfulness, consciousness, same thing really here, is to direct it and it helps to enliven the cells more, to feel life. Sometimes when we say, I I don't feel, uh, hardly feel alive, it's a statement of, in the self-image, an alienation which is taking place, we really want to uh, uh, really connect. And some people will say fairly regularly on the retreats, oh, I'm I'm not a morning person. I'm not a afternoon person or an evening person so my response is if you're not a morning person how do describe to me life as a zombie if one's not feeling much energy it's a pity to be in the land of the walking dead in the morning life is incredibly short 
pity just to have that image of oneself as being this at this time of the day and something else at some other time of the day. Of the day. Whoa! Bit of a waste of a good chunk of one's life, I would say. It might be that if one is carrying um, such an image and picture story of uh, 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 oneself, <coughs> it might just require a little bit more movement of the energy. That may not be, obviously, with the sitting practice or the slow walking or whatever. Then just take a good long walk. Most of you will have good rain kit with you. It's uh, raining. And, or just move the body or do some Tai Chi or yoga or uh, go for a fast walk or, or a jog or dance or something to help the life get back into the body therefore the connection with the body and realising I'd rather live with the truth of the body than live with my image of it and that's a, the, the significant uh, uh, difference so sometimes as I say we can scan the attention right through the body really uh, feel it another important aspect as well is addressing and touching some of those rather painful difficult er uh, areas uh, that uh, arise and it's worthwhile doing it might make some difference to the area but it's a good training because there may be in our day-to-day -day life <coughs> areas <coughs> which we <coughs> know we're avoiding. We know we're not willing, we're afraid to speak up. We know we are steering away from addressing. And the body can be a helpful trainer, training for this. So that if there is a location in the, the knees, the back, the shoulders, or or whatever to actually use the quiet power of the mindfulness place it right into those actual areas we might just start from the side in that painful region in the body we might look at it from above so to speak from below we might chip away at the edge we might get to the center we're getting close to where the heat is we're not denying it or avoiding we say this is happening let me see if I can get close to it. And while doing that, to see as well if we can allow and be mindful of this, that the rest of the body is calm and relaxed. When we are fighting pain, there will usually be some contraction in some other part of the body. We might start holding our hands tightly, pulling in the muscles in the stomach area, clenching the shoulders, or whatever it might be. So we want to be able to have enough mindfulness to check much of the body, and then be in touch with a difficult area, and see if that difficult area is triggering a contraction elsewhere. And that mindfulness is this con contributing to a contraction elsewhere. It might just be, if you look very carefully in any other problematic situation of your life and there's a contraction around it, it might just be 
contributing to a contraction in some other situation. It isn't easy to have a relaxed being bringing attention to a painful area. Of course, if it's very painful with the body, as mentioned to you um, the other evening, not a, a practice of the willpower trying to prove everything. It's important to respect the freedom to change the posture. So if you just feel you're fighting with the form, physical form, you're just uh, doing your mantras for the end of the sitting period, or whatever it might be. There. Just, just be calm, be clear about it, unravel the legs, stretch the back, do what's appropriate to relieve the pain, and then make that quiet return back to the original posture after a minute or, or two. So not moving too far away from it and staying steady and true to it. It has a fairly deep resonance and deep reminder about lots of other things. Because we know if we don't address them, they are not going to go away. And we can run as far as we wish to run. And as the Buddha rather ruefully commented, Wherever we go, our mind goes with us. So we want to be really quite clear about it. It's no picnic. Not easy. Uh, there. Sometimes, speaking from here, with the uh, immediacy of a very minor, minor, minor event, the cold. So in the totality of the body, at currently, it's in kind of three locations. Nose, sometimes the tap goes on. Uh, there, Might, those of us who are uh, vegan, plant-based, I noticed, having been plant-based now since, uh, must be about 12 years now, that there's much less mucus and all the other uh, extras because there's the absence of the dairy products so it's one more reason for you all to be adopt a full plant-based diet all right advertisement over secondly is the throat yeah. yeah sometimes the voice goes a little dry small small thing and the third is the chest so what I notice and may have done a good mindfulness practice with the meditations or the concentrations can be a very useful tool for working with uh, <coughs> pardon me with this. So what I notice if my mind wanders a bit, it can. Therefore, it's not being noticed, not being seen. The mind is wandering. I'm thinking about something. And then the pressure, say in the, in the chest as the example, might just start to build up. Yeah. But if I'm really mindful and really on the ball, you know, I'm doing it uh, there, and in touch and knowing that uh, of the uh, irritation in the chest uh, there, it's very unlikely to move into a, a coughing spot. 
Sometimes, even with good mindfulness, remember it's a metaphor for pretty well everything in life here, sometimes, in spite of being um, with the irritation, let us say, it's still quietly building, but if there's, not always, if there's enough relaxation going along with it, uh, there and enough mindfulness and enough concentration and enough meditation or whatever, it chills out and it may not actually lead to the coughing spurt because the breath and the mindfulness and the checking for the, re, uh, the uh, re- relaxation. So, I suppose I could say with regard to this, so, um, if you hear me engaging in a coughing spurt, you can draw the conclusion, oh, his mind obviously wandered, because of there. Or, um, if you hear me engaging in a, a coughing spurt, oh, obviously his mindfulness and concentration wasn't steady enough because there's a, there's a coughing spurt or whatever. I, I don't think I've ever heard Ula. You ever, I've never heard you cough in a sitting at all, Ula. So if you, if you feel kind of disappointed with Christopher, oh gosh, his mind wanders and he hasn't got enough mindfulness uh, uh, there, then just tick your name out you know, Christopher, because really what can he teach anything? And, um, and go and see, <laughs> go, go and put your name and, with Ulla's good name uh, in, 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 instead uh, there. Yeah. Or you could always go and see Meister Eckhart if you like. I'm sure, <laughs> sure he doesn't cough, etc. Mind you, it would cost you around a thousand euros for four days with him, but but if he coughs you can ask for your money back <laughs> alright so in the <laughs> wicked the word gets back to these guys when I make these kind of comments I know I get told but anyway so in the day today we have four postures finally sitting, walking, standing and reclining if we develop each posture we will get to know which of those four postures really are supportive for us. So sometimes the sitting, which is stillness in it, is not suitable if there's a lot of reactivity or agitation. We might need just to walk up and down uh, there. We should not place a demand that that the sitting will be the answer. It is a contribution. It might be, as I say, uh, the walking meditation serves our deeper interests much more. We can engage in the standing meditation and really uh, strongly recommend the standing meditation. It's, it's become the poor cousin of the four postures, I notice. But in the monastery, when I was a monk, we had th- from four, 4.30 to 5.30 every day, the entire monastery, 200 of us, doing our standing meditation under under the trees. The teacher didn't like us doing it in our huts because he didn't trust us. So it all had to be done outdoors where he could witness. This is life in the monasteries there. So that's, and there is the reclining posture as, uh, uh, well, some of the teachers, some of my beloved uh, teachers, they actually teach reclining posture meditation. So some of those 
practitioners will come and retreat here, then they've heard from the teachers who teach inclining posture, and then they think, oh, they're doing it there, and then I'll just do the horizontal here during the talk or, or whatever. You know, I wouldn't mind so much, despite the confidence going down that the person will be really present. But the one thing which is challenge with all of this, mostly, is that it's very, very easy for men and women who are in the reclining posture to fall asleep. I don't mind them falling asleep. But it's slightly competitive when the person is snoring and one is giving a Dharma talk on waking up. So, uh, <coughs> for this particular uh, motivation and uh, uh, reason, and just very quickly on this, one person, not so long ago, I think it, was, it must be uh, 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 last year, was convinced it was only for religious, some kind of religious reason, not allowed to lie down for the talk. I said, it's not. <coughs> It's, it's practical. It really does disturb <coughs> if the person, not because they want to, falls asleep and snores. So the person kept going on about it. So I said, what do you do? And he said, um, actually, he was in his early 20s. He said, I'm a student. Right. So next time you go, what time do you have your lectures? Oh, in the morning. Oh, like this, like this morning. Well, I said, next time you go to a lecture... You're a free human being. You don't. It, it's not religious. It's, it's in the lecture hall. Lie down on your back and listen to the lecture. Lie down on your back and listen to the lecture. There, and make sure that the lecturer can see you. And if the lecturer is totally fine with you, then others. Uh, lying down on your uh, on your back of the lecture. Then next time, if you come on a retreat with me, and you do it, and you get full support, then you can lie down on your back in the hall here. I haven't seen him yet. <laughs> Sometimes there's just small things. We, we we would you know we could go into the CEO's office and lie down on our back and say, look, we have one or two things we need to talk about, etc. So just say, form has a place. It's not attachment to the form, it's not clinging to the form, it's what contributes to our receptivity uh, uh, with each other. That, that's the, the important thing with all of this. As sometimes we are sick, and back problems, of course. do, 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 lie down. It's no problem. All right, we have a full day today. Uh, and I from 10.30 will be meeting with people uh, one-to-ones do check on the notice board we've also made some spaces as well and if you wish to come and see either Ula or I you're very very welcome put your good name in that space and then tomorrow plenty of spaces will be put up by the two of us and it will only be sign-ups um, uh, tomorrow that's the form all right, let's have a few minutes uh, meditation together. Thank you.